you believe everything you see? Søren Kierkegaard is a famous Danish philosopher, and he used to tell the story of a circus that would travel around the countryside and set up just outside of villages. He normally liked to set up above the village so everybody in the village could look up and, and see the circus. On this particular occasion, one of the members of the circus started a fire, and the fire jumped outside the fire ring, and it began to go down, and, and the circus master began to realize if somebody didn't warn them, the city would be consumed. One of the clowns, dressed in full clown regalia, jumped on his clown bike and raced into the town. And as he did, he said, Beware, fire is coming! The more animated he became, the more they enjoyed the show until the fire showed up. We don't always believe everything we see. One of my favorite movies, and I'm not sure if it's because it centers on Iowa or if it centers on sports, but A Field of Dreams is an incredible story. It's a story of a man who sees something, but can he really believe it? Be honest, if you were in a cornfield and saw a field appear, what would you do? I think I'd go in and lay down and assume I'd been out in the sun too long. Simply seeing things doesn't really make it real, does it? We have the incredible privilege this morning of going back to Luke's gospel. And in Luke chapter 24, we have this incredible story. Let me just give a bit of background. If you were here last week, we were with Jesus as he enters the city. He enters the city to shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And as he enters the city, the city is above with excitement that Jesus, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited king who's going to throw off the bondage of Rome and he's going to establish his kingdom and Israel will reign and rule. But in the days that follow, Jesus enters the temple and throws off the bondage of the religious leaders. He throws off the money changers and he, he sets the animals free and the people begin to realize that Jesus is not here to establish a physical kingdom. And they sour. They become discouraged. And five days later, the same people who were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is shouting, crucify him. And Jesus dies. It's at that point we pick up 
the story in Luke chapter 24. If you were out at camp this morning, Luke shares with us what I would call a triptych, three different panels. He begins in the morning with women. He moves to the afternoon with disciples who are done with it and are returning to Emmaus. But this morning, for the time we have, I want to pick up the story beginning in verse 33. Because there's part of the story that kind of bewilders me. It says they, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem and they found that the 11 that were with them assembled together saying it's true the Lord has risen and has appeared. Why does he point out Simon? Have you ever think, thought about why Simon becomes such an important part of the story? If you go back to earlier in the story the women come back and they say we've seen him and they say you guys have lost your minds. You have been seeing Fields appearing in cornfields. You don't know what you're talking about. But Peter gets up and goes. I don't know for certain the reason. But I have to wonder if Peter just hoped a little more because of all he'd been through. If I could take you back to chapter 22. In chapter 22, we have what we often call the Last Supper. And Jesus gathers his disciples together. And as he's instituting this wonderful ceremony, he says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with me on the table. And the Son of Man will go as it was, has been decreed. But woe to the man who betrays me. And then they all began to question among themselves, which of them it would be who would do such a thing? And then a dispute arises. It ain't me. I'm the best disciple. It can't be me. I'm not the one who's going to betray him. And the disciples begin to argue amongst themselves as to who truly is the greatest of all the disciples. And Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you. As one who serves, you are those who stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he turns to Peter. And I don't really have time for rabbit trails this morning, but it is somewhat interesting to me what Jesus calls Peter. If you go to the Hebrew culture, you will quick to find out that names are chosen not because of how they sound or necessarily who you're related to. They're chosen by what they mean. In fact, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, individuals who go through a traumatic experience, they often have their name changed. Abram, father of many. It's changed to Abraham, father of many nations. Jacob, the deceiver, is changed to Israel, the one who wrestled with God. Simon, the one who hears, is changed to the rock, Peter. But it's interesting to me that as you go to the Old Testament, Abraham is never referred to as Abram after he gets a new name. Jacob, on the other hand, you can tell the context of what's about to happen by the name that's used. Is it Jacob or is it Israel? I have to wonder if Jesus goes back to Simon because this isn't the rock he's about to build his church upon. 
This is little old Simon who used to be a fisher. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn your back, strengthen your brothers. And Simon, in the bravado you would expect, no way, not me, those other bums. You know, the lesser of those 11 disciples that are seated around the table, they may decide, deceive you, deny you, run away from you. But I'm ready to die, or at the least, go to prison. The evening ends, Jesus takes his disciples and chooses Peter, James, and John and says, I need you guys, pray with me. And Peter, James, and John, not once, not twice, but three times, fall asleep. And then suddenly the, the garden is filled with the, uh, the soldiers of the temple and as they do, Peter, not knowing what to do, grabs his sword and strikes out and cuts an ear off and, and suddenly... Everything Jesus had predicted begins to come true. All of the disciples abandoned Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. And as the events of that night began to unfold, Peter, not once, not twice, but three times denies Jesus. The last in verse 60 of chapter 22, it says, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. As it did, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. He's blown it. The final words Jesus would ever hear from the mouth of Peter were his greatest failure of his life. And then, Jesus is crucified. I fear that in our 21st century, we don't always understand crucifixion. Luke simply chooses to describe it this way. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. No description, no details, because everybody in the first century was forced by Rome to watch a crucifixion. Everybody who was reading that gospel in the first century fully knew what crucifixion was like, but I'm not sure we do. Uh, on Wednesday, I get the chance to tell the story in Awana, and because it was Easter, rather than me telling the story, I just played a video entitled, He is Risen. A and the kids were watching it, and we have a number of kids who are coming from unchurched backgrounds, sitting next to my wife. A couple of them leaned over and asked, who are those other three guys? Why does he have all those cuts? What are they doing to him? See, I don't know that we fully grasp the significance of crucifixion, but I can promise you this. It was final, and you definitely died. And now Peter is alone with the reality that he has let his Savior down. My guess is some of you can relate to that. You have relationships that ended poorly. And the final words that you spoke are words that you wish so desperately you could take back, but you can't. They're out there. And in Peter's case, there's no chance of ever having the forgiveness he longs for. And so when there was a chance that maybe Jesus had risen, Peter wanted to see
But what we find out very quickly is Peter bends over and, and he looks and, and it amazes me. He still doesn't get it. Wouldn't you think seeing an empty tomb, seeing the grave clothes carefully folded and placed on the spot where the, the body once lay, wouldn't you think that maybe you would start to get it? No. No. Peter is confused. He wanders away, wondering to himself, what in the world could happen? And then in verse 34, the only statement in the Gospels, I don't know why the Gospel writers, I wish the Gospel writers had told us this story. What was it like when Jesus appeared to Peter? All we know is verse 34, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Paul in 1 Corinthians, his great resurrection chapter, is gonna share that he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then the 12. Peter was the first of the disciples who saw him. Why? Because I think Peter needed it more than everyone else there. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you are carrying around a weight of guilt that you can't imagine it ever going anywhere. I assure you, it couldn't have been worse than what Peter was carrying. And yet the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. But there were a bunch of disciples. I, I don't know what your mind goes to. I've always kind of envisioned disciples means 12, so okay, we know that Judas wasn't there because he was out committing suicide. We know that Thomas wasn't there. John tells us that, that he had given up and had gone up by himself. But there was probably like 10 guys in the room, right? When Luke is going to share this story in chapter 1, we're going to look at it next week, there's 120 in the room. I, I don't know how many were in the room at this time, but I, I really do sense that there was more than just the 12. I, I don't know if there was a full 120, but they were talking about all the things that they have heard, and then Jesus appears, and I know it says, peace be with you. That's a good English translation of the Greek, but I, I, I really think Jesus would have entered the room and simply said, shalom. And everybody believes, whoa, he's raised from the dead, whoa! They're startled. They're frightened. It, it may be easy to miss, but they conclude he must be a ghost. If you study the Old Testament, you will find clear condemnations of the idea of ghosts existing. Necromancers, as they were referred to, were those who tried to conjure up the dead. And it was a capital offense in the Jewish system to be a necromancer. The only hint you have of anywhere in the Old Testament of people coming back is when Saul tried to talk to, to, to Samuel and, and the witch at Endor surprised herself by bringing Samuel back. There was nothing in Jewish tradition, nothing in Scripture, nothing that would suggest ghosts were real. And yet, the culture that they lived in, every story the Romans had had ghosts in it. Every story the Greeks had had ghosts in it. Every story the Persians had had ghosts in it. When push comes to shove, culture won. Before you judge the disciples too strongly, I wonder if we sometimes reject the teaching of Scripture for the benefit of culture. It's not what I see on TikTok or YouTube or uh, Facebook or pick your social media. 
they must be right. God's word is the problem. They should never have even thought of a ghost, and yet they were being impacted by their culture in ways that were unhealthy. And thus they conclude, it must be a ghost. And so Jesus says to come and to touch them. He, he says, surely if they see the holes in my hands, to Thomas, he's going to hold his hand up and say, put your finger right through the hole. If you were watching the video, they did their best to show them coming up and touching Jesus. Because Jesus wanted them to know that flesh and blood can't be a ghost. And so now they believed. They got to see and touch Jesus. Seeing was enough, right? Be honest. Don't you doubt many things you see? We live in an interesting time when you can go and watch a movie and see people turn into green monsters because they get angry. Fly through the air. You can go on, on YouTube and watch all of these amazing events. Earlier this season, I was watching a video of Tom Brady throwing a football into a jugs machine. A jugs machine is the thing that throws footballs. And it looks so real. It wasn't. What I saw isn't real. Can you see some things that aren't real? Well, the disciples were not believing. In fact, now they have moved from doubting because of fear to doubting because of uncontrollable excitement. They were so excited. They were so filled with joy. But they didn't believe. If we had time, I would love to go back to John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, it's a story of the triumphal entry from John's perspective. And he shares that even though Jesus had done Many miraculous signs. John chooses to share seven of, with, seven of them with us, but he shares at the end of his book that all of the volumes of all the world couldn't contain them all. And yet, even though they saw the miracles, they refused to believe. And one of the biggest reasons, he says in verse 42, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I wonder whose praise are you seeking this morning? Are we seeking to be approved by men or by God? See, seeing isn't necessarily believing. My guess is that some of us may think if Jesus would just show up this morning, I would believe. I don't think you would. Because seeing is often not believing. He continues, and he gave them a, or they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, this is what I've told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the three major divisions in the Hebrew Bible. There is the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. There are the writings that inc include the historical books, include books like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then there were the prophets. And, and Jesus says, I can take you to each of them. Back on the road to Emmaus, he did that. Here, he just simply says he could. And then he opens their eyes. And once their eyes are opened, now they believe. See, Scripture is what all of us need to believe 
God. He says to them, this is what was written, the Christ must suffer. I know that the suffering of Christ is not something very popular today. In fact, most of us don't like the idea of suffering. And yet the Old Testament is abundantly clear that before Christ would be exalted, he would suffer. I have no idea where he went. Maybe he went to Genesis chapter three, the story of the garden and Adam and Eve given everything on all the planets and given only one prohibition. You can do everything you want in this entire world but one thing. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they say, nope, I want that too. My way is better than God's way. And humanity is cast down into this continual state of sin that plagues each one of us every day before God gets to his consequences, first to the woman and then to the man. He starts with his cursing of the snake. And he says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. The offspring of the woman will one day come and destroy Satan. But not before Satan strikes his heel. Maybe he went to Isaiah 53, and we could spend the rest of the morning in Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for my transgressions, for your transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that I deserve, the punishment that I have earned was placed on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Maybe he went to Psalm 22 as Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of groaning? My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. A band of evil men have encircled me. And some thousand years before it happens, 700 years before crucifixion would be invented, the psalmist writes, they have pierced my hands and my feet. But the classic illustration takes you to the Passover. The very ceremony the disciples had just celebrated with Jesus, a a precious lamb, a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, was taken and slain. And the blood of that lamb in the original Passover was taken and collected and painted on the doorposts as that blood became the symbol that in order for my life to be spared, a lamb must die. That lamb was Christ. Christ came to take upon himself the punishment I deserve that you deserve. He must first suffer, but then he will rise from the dead. Jesus had at least three specific times unequivocally shared. In chapter 9, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed And on the third day, be raised to life. In chapter 18, as Jesus is in the city of Jericho, ascending to Jerusalem for that final time, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And then on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was not some unexpected miracle. It was something Jesus had promised would happen. 
And on the third day, his disciples stand looking at a resurrected Savior. And then they preached. Two things. The first is repentance. Repentance is a word that isn't used much in the English vocabulary any longer. It's simply a word that simply means I'm going in one direction and I turn and go the other direction. As you begin to explore repentance in the Bible, it basically means that all of us here this morning have spent much of our life attempting to earn the favor of God. We've done it through good works. We've done it through attending church services, going through religious rituals. We've attempted to earn the favor of God in so many ways because we think we can earn his favor. But Jesus came to show us his standard is beyond anything we can ever achieve Because all it takes is one time for me to say the wrong thing. One time for me to do the wrong thing. One time for me to think the wrong thing. One time for me to fail to do the right thing. And I'm damned. And there's nothing I can do about it. But repentance is the incredible realization that I can't earn God's favor. But his son came to give me God's favor if I will but in faith stop earning and begin to trust. And that trust results not just in sins forgiven, but in a transformed life. You you, you can read lots of books about evidences of the resurrection, and, and I believe I could stand and prove to you this morning that there is no historical fact that is more documentable than the resurrection of Jesus. But in my opinion, the strongest evidence is in the life of the disciples. As the Gospel of Luke ends, they are in an upper room, doors locked, terrified of the outside world. And then Jesus appears, and something amazing happens. In fact, the gospel is continued in the book of Acts, and we're going to get there next week. And as the book of Acts begins, the gospel starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, then Samaria. And by the end of the gospel, or by the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has gone to the uttermost parts of the world because those who believed couldn't keep it to themselves. They had to tell others. And they filled the world to the point that one of the complaints of Paul will be, he's turned the world upside down. It was 120 people, about the number here this morning, that changed the world. Yeah, but they were special, right? No, they weren't. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were people like you and like me, filled with the joy of a life transformed. And they changed their world. Repentance. And here comes the incredible gift. Sins forgiven. I don't know what guilt you are weighing is weighing you down this morning. I I don't know what you're struggling with, but I know this. Forgiveness is made possible because Jesus took your sin and paid the penalty and offers you life. Paul puts it this way. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified and with the mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Simple question this morning. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Father, I I thank you for Easter. I thank you for this incredible reminder that you came, that you lived a perfect life, that you died for my sins, for the sins of the world, and offer life eternal if we will simply believe in you. God, I I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never done that, that this morning would be their day of sins forgiven as they place their faith in you. For it is in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.